So uh, we're back to Ezekiel, doom and destruction. Are you guys ready? (laughs) Why don't you turn to Ezekiel chapter 8 as we resume our study this evening. Ezekiel chapter 8. Interesting that, um, you know, Ezekiel is such a heavy book because of really sin and idolatry and the debauchery of the people of Israel during that time, during Ezekiel's day. But it does, sadly, as Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, we've seen this parallel of the culture of the men of Judea uh, and a parallel with the, the culture of the men and women of Portland, Oregon and, and uh, the United States of America and uh, really globally around the world. We see the same exact things happening. Um, it's not that far. People say the Bible's an old book with ancient stories of ancient people. How can we relate? Well, it's kind of profound how we still relate to these people. We're doing the exact same things they did. And the reason that is important to study the book of Ezekiel is to realize the very curses that the people were placing upon themselves because of their sin, um, you know, some of it is sort of not even really God cursing them, it's their own sins are cursing them. You know, it's, it's funny, be sure of this, your sins will find you out. It's not that God will find you out, he already knows everything. It's when your sins catch up to you. It's, it's the repercussion of sin. And we'll even see some of that tonight uh, in Ezekiel's understanding of what happens to the Jews during this time period. And, and so there's much to learn. But Ezekiel's interesting because, you know, he's sort of the priest, uh, the son of Buzi. Uh, remember, we looked at him uh, in the chapter one. Uh, but he's also a prophet. He should have been a priest in Jerusalem. Uh, But because of the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's writing his, you know, visions and the prophecies of his book from the the Chaldean area just outside of Babylon. And uh, and he's writing these visions and things that the Lord is speaking about the Jews. Um, There's still, in the time of Ezekiel, there's still a bunch of people in Judea, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem hasn't been totally destroyed yet. Uh, It's hard for us because we already saw the total destruction of Jerusalem when we were reading Jeremiah. Uh, So we have to rewind in history a little bit and go back to before Jerusalem was destroyed. And and Ezekiel's seeing these visions and he's speaking them to a small uh, group of people by the river of Kedar uh, there in Babylon. A small group, they're hearing, you mean Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and everybody's going to die? I mean, this is all news still to them. You and I kind of know what happened uh, because of the book of Jeremiah and history. Um, But Ezekiel gives a little bit of a different perspective and perhaps even, this is where Ezekiel gets tricky, uh, the mystic Ezekiel, is he's talking about Judea and Jerusalem, um, but it's almost like you can sense the gaze of Ezekiel goes past that even and maybe even to the very end of time. It's like Ezekiel's prophecies pertain to the Jews in Jerusalem, but it's also that it it pertains to the Jews during the tribulation period and even the millennial reign. And then Ezekiel's gonna just totally go off on the millennium and and end his book talking more about that. So it it makes Ezekiel interesting. It's not just speaking, you know, of that area uh, in that time of 586 BC-ish. but it's, it's actually gazing even into our future and Ezekiel's gonna touch on themes that have to do with the future history. We haven't really seen a lot of that yet, 
But as we get later into the book, we're gonna touch on some very interesting prophetic themes that have yet to even happen in the world. And we're seeing those things come together. We'll touch on a little bit of that tonight as well. So in chapter one, we saw this vision, uh, you know, with the cherubim and the wheels within wheels and the glory of God floating along with these cherubim and these wheels. And we, we looked at that. That's gonna come into play tonight again. We're not gonna spend a lot of time revisiting that. So if you missed chapter one, you'll, you might wanna go pick that up or else tonight will, will be a little bit more difficult to understand. Because uh, that, that whole wheel within wheel cherubim situation with the glory of God, the kabod, it's coming back. Uh, and we got to see that again tonight. Um, but uh, we begin where we left off after Ezekiel's been giving all these object lessons and field trips and stuff like that. Um, you know, telling the Jews, here's what's going down, here's what's happening. And he was doing it more uh, in a, almost like a pantomime. Words weren't effective anymore for the Jews. The people of Israel were rejecting the words of the prophets. So the prophet started doing these strange deeds. We saw him lying on his side in the days of judgment. Uh, we saw him running around chasing his hair in the wind that he cut off with a sword, uh, like crazy stuff. But it was all meaning important things to uh, the people. And there were lessons that we saw right up to here in chapter eight. Now, chapter 8 through 11 sort of comes as a package deal. If you want to put them together, it makes sense because this is really um, the vision that he's given concerning the judgment. And it's a very um, clear vision about what's going to happen to the Jews. Um, and it's chapters 8 through 11. So we have our work cut out for us tonight. And we're going to find this to be somewhat of a hair-raising experience. Let's take a look. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8, and it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Now, this tells us something about the way the Jews lived in Israel. They, they lived in homes. You say, well, of course they did. But remember, they're in captivity. Uh, but this tells us, and we've talked about this, in Babylonian history, they didn't throw you in prison or a dungeon if you were a captive of war. But their goal was to assimilate you into the culture. So they'd bring you into Babylon and they'd give you a house and you'd have a place to live. Uh, and, the, and the smartest and the brightest of the group, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would live in the courts of you know, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the way they would try to assimilate rather than imprison all their enemies. They would say, man, you can come and live with us or you can die. It's your choice. We'll give you a house or, you, or we can slaughter you in the street, whichever one you choose. That's kind of the way they did it. And most of we'll, we'll choose the house. Thank you. And, and it was really kind of a no brainer judgment. In fact, historically, by the way, the Babylonians were maybe even the best at this throughout history <clears throat> of taking their conquered people and making people glad about it. You say, Brett, that didn't happen to the Jews. Oh, it sure did. Do you remember when you know, uh, Artaxerxes gave the command to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the Jews were free? Okay, Jews, you can leave Babylon, go home. <clears throat> A tiny fraction of them came back. The rest of them stayed in Babylon. They were walking like Babylonians, talking like Babylonians. They were, you know, uh, they were like, oh, Babylon or whatever their song was. Uh, they were totally hook, line and sinker, man. They loved Babylon. And it, it, it's a picture of you and I as well. And you and I have to be careful not to be lovers of this world. That's an important thing to remember. 
We are called, you and I are called to be strangers in a strange land, pilgrims, sojourners. We're not supposed to be super comfortable here and say, you know, you know this is what it's all about being here. And I, I do wonder, these are interesting times. One of the things I might talk about, I've got too many things to think about on Prophecy Update this Friday night. Um, uh, I, I, I don't even know how to narrow down the topics. But, um, but one topic that I've been thinking about and I might touch on a little bit um, is um, that not only are we comfortable here in this world as Christians, the church in America, and, and we've assimilated into this world. Remember the Bible told us that we're in this world, but we're not supposed to be of this world. But I think there's some things that the church of Jesus Christ, more than just the obvious ones, there are some things that the church has become very much of this world, not just in the world, but they've become very much of the world. And you say, yeah, Brett, they're watching movies and listening to music and well, that, that could be true too. But, but there's actually something maybe even more sinister and more uh, dark that the church of Jesus Christ has assimilated in. And uh, we, we'll touch on that maybe uh, Friday night. Um, but we see that here with the, the Jews in Babylon. They love Babylon. They started assimilating. So th this kind of shows us, here's Ezekiel sitting in his house with some of the elders of Israel in his living room, and they're all just sitting there talking. Uh, they're free to do that because that's the way the Babylonians did it. Uh, so that speaks a little bit about the situation. But then suddenly something happens to Ezekiel in this little meeting in his house with his buddies, uh, his, the leaders of Israel. Um, so the Lord says, he fell, he fell upon Ezekiel there. Verse two, then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire. From the appearance of his loins, even downward fire. And from his loins, even upward, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of amber. And he put forth the form of an hand and took me by a lock of mine head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heavens and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looked toward the north where there was a seat of, an, of the image of jealousy which provoketh to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. I told you it was a hair-raising experience. He took, took him up by a lock of his hair and he picked him up by his hair. When I was in life-saving, I used to teach life-saving at a at college level, believe it or not, water safety instruction and water uh, life-saving. Uh, but there used, I don't think we do it as much anymore, but they used to have a carry, the hair carry. I think you do it only in the worst case scenario now, um, where you just, uh, if a person's panicking and freaking out, instead of just coming up to them and letting them punch you in the face and knock you both out, you grab them sort of by the hair on the back of the head. There was, we even practiced this. You know, you'd get your hand right about here and you'd grab as much hair as you could. And then you, at arm's distance, just tow them by the hair. Um, that way they can't get to you and punch you or freak out. Um, is that still taught in water? Any of you water safety people here? Uh, they used to teach that. They also, before that, they used to teach you punch them in the face. Uh, <laughs> anybody old enough to remember that? It, it used to, they used to do that. If they're freaking out, give them a good punch in the chin, knock them out, and then you take them into safety. Um, <laughs> that, that, that was dropped uh, somewhere in 1983, I think. Um, that, that's the way we used to do things, punch people. But all that to say, uh, uh, here the Lord picks up Ezekiel by the hair and brings him between heaven and earth. And he sees this interesting <coughs> vision 
And one thing, there's a bunch of stuff here that we could really talk about. It already is kind of chock full of stuff. He brought him to see these visions of God uh, and he brings him to the north, uh, looking toward the north, the north gate of Jerusalem. Um, and, um, and it says here that uh, the image of jealousy was provoked to jealousy. What is that? That's a strange phrase. But if you're a Bible student, this may not be so strange. Um, one of the big mistakes people make is thinking that jealousy is always wrong or evil. Did you know there's good jealousy and there's bad jealousy? If you're jealous because your best friend has a you know, beautiful girlfriend and you don't and you're jealous, well, that's sin and wacko and stupid, stop it. <laughs> but there's actually a righteous jealousy um, and, and God exhibits righteous jealousy. He's a righteous God. Well, how could God be jealous? Uh, I've mentioned this before, but it, it, it's, it's one of the more famous people of today that left the true faith of Jesus Christ because of this one line in the Bible, our God is a jealous God. And so Oprah Winfrey, as a young woman, heard that by her pastor and she said, well, I can't serve or believe in a God that is jealous. And that's where she went off into this crazy new age stuff that she's been into all these years. And it's sad because some of you ladies have listened to her book clubs and stuff. I know there's, there's all these millions of women who love Oprah. And you, some of you are here. I know you're not out. You're thinking, why is Brett talking about, about Oprah? Because <laughs> she's pretty much Satan incarnate. No, I'm just kidding. Just, just kidding. Just messing with you guys. No, she's, she is into new age. It's, it's a, it, and new age is an old lie. It's enlightenment and becoming like gods and all this stuff. And Oprah's totally into that stuff. Um, but she doesn't believe that Jesus is the only way. You can find her on YouTube saying, I don't believe there's only one way to heaven through Jesus. Like she says all this stuff and she, she believes it. Where did her faith get derailed? She used to be a Baptist. Where did that get derailed? When she heard the pastor say, God is a jealous God. So heartbreaking. Because God being jealous, is he's not jealous of anyone, he's jealous for someone, that is you. He doesn't wanna see Satan take you and work you over and mess you up. And God is jealous for you. It's a little bit like when a, a mom and a dad, a parent sees that your, the daughter is dating a young man. Uh, she, you know, her, her uh, 19 year old daughter's dating a 32 year old guy who lives in his parents' basements playing, you know, video games. And, and, and suddenly the parents become sort of jealous for her in, in the sense that they want so much more for her. They don't want some guy that's living with his mom in, her, in his basement uh, playing video games at 32. She just doesn't want that. The, the mom and dad don't want that. They're jealous because they love their daughter and they want what's better for them. That, that's another way of saying jealous. And in, the, in that way, God, he's not jealous of anyone. He's jealous for his people. <clears throat> now, how do I know that? Uh, you, you can jot some of these places down, but uh, maybe you can remember uh, some of these scriptures. Ezekiel, pardon me, uh, Exodus chapter 34. Uh, this is where the Lord talked with Moses and said this in Exodus 34, 13. He says, but you shall destroy the altars and break down their images and cut down their groves for thou shalt worship no other God for the Lord, that is Jehovah, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. His name is jealous. That's one of the names of God is jealous. And it, it, obviously he's not jealous of these gods that are fake and dumb. He's jealous for his people. That's the idea. 
Um, and that's what the Bible says. It's not that he's called jealous, uh, you know, like he's got a jealous streak. No, his name is jealous. Uh, that's an important feature of who God is. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 15. It says, but Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked and waxing fat, grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Um, and then he forsook the, him who made him and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation and they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, provoked him to anger. These people were, you know, living large, fat and happy on their gods and goddesses of paganism. And there in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord says, you've provoked God to a jealousy. Um, provoking to a jealousy against those false gods. Now they're false gods, but we know behind those false gods is a a true evil one, Satan himself and his demonic, you know, henchmen. Uh, they're all alive and well. And, um, and the Lord doesn't want his kids to get ensnared by the evil one. So it's an endearing thing of God that he's jealous for you, that he wants to protect you from such stupidity and such destruction. Um, and so that's the idea of God being a jealous God. And, and I hope that nobody gets derailed by that, not understanding you know, what, what the biblical definition of this idea of jealousy is. Now that brings us back to Ezekiel 8 and it maybe gives you and me an idea of what's going on here when it says they come to the, the gate of the north that looks toward the north um, where there was a seat, an image of jealousy which provoketh to jealousy. Um, that would be one of these images set up right there at the northern side of the Temple Mount where the temple was. Um, uh, now the temple, by the way, in Ezekiel's time uh, was not the size of Jerusalem as it is today. And when we talk about these east gates and north gates and what have you, and the south gates and the southern steps, um, it was really mostly the Temple Mount we're talking about. It wasn't the greater city of Jerusalem. Um, so when you talk about the northern gate, we're talking about the northern side of the temple and at the northern side of the temple, the Lord indicts the people saying, you've got these altars to these pagan deities that provoketh to jealousy. It's the same jealousy talked about there in Exodus 34, in Deuteronomy 32, the same jealousy. And that's why, you know, Ezekiel says it's an image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And then in verse four, as we read it, it says, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plane. Now that's the good news. We're about to see what the bad news is. Um, the glory of God is there. But now we need to conjure up an, the description that, we're, that we were given in Ezekiel chapter one of what, what was the glory of God? Does anybody remember where was the glory of God sitting? Anybody? Okay, the mercy seat's a good answer because we do know that the kabod, the glory of God was over the Ark of the Covenant. And that is true, biblically. But in Ezekiel's case, there was an interesting sort of shift of where the glory of God was. And it was very mysterious and weird. Anybody? Do you remember the cherubim and the wheels and the glory of God dwelt where the cherubim were and where the wheels were in the midst of the wheel? Like this really mysterious thing. It's like, it's almost like um, the glory of God was being sort of carried around by these cherubim and these wheels within wheels, gyroscopic. Like Ezekiel's pretty myst myst mystical uh, in his visions here. But the reason I, I mention that is you almost have to 
realize that's what he's talking about in verse four. The glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. What was the vision that he saw in the plain? Chapter one, verse 28 is probably the epicenter of what I'm talking about there. So we gotta get back. I know it's been a few weeks. Uh, we gotta get back to that idea and we'll get, we'll get another description almost repetitively tonight of what that sort of looked like. Um, but the glory of God is, is there with these cherubim and, and here's what makes me a little nervous. It's movable. It's almost like um, if you could sort of picture, you know, you're, you're in a uh, military situation and you're in battle and suddenly these black hawks come ta -ta 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 -ta, and they land and you all start loading up and you're, you're getting evac'd out. And that, that's gotta be a good feeling when you've been in the heat of battle to, to finally be lifted out of there. But everything's just kind of there, ta -ta 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 -ta, but it's not actually flying yet. That's the sense we get right here. We get this gyroscopic wheels within wheels and these cherubims with these fluttering wings that sound like a, a hurricane, remember? The, the wings whoa, 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 of these cherubim and, and the glory of God all there and it's just kind of hovering there. Is it gonna stay or is it gonna go? And I think the, the sense is the glory of God is about to depart. And uh, the question is, what does that mean for the Jews? So, so this is kind of the imagery that we saw in chapter one that I want you to be thinking about as we kind of continue here in chapter eight. Well, verse five goes on and says, then said he unto me, son of man, lift up now uh, thine eyes the way toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes the way toward the north and behold northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said, furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again and thou shalt see greater abominations. So he says, listen, Ezekiel, do you see these images, these altars that have been built to these pagan deities and they're right here in my sanctuary? And he's like, yeah, I see them. And you think I'm just gonna stay here? That's kind of what the Lord's saying. My glory is just gonna dwell in this place where paganism is happening? And he says, I'm even gonna show you worse things. And then we looked at this several weeks ago on a, a weekend service, the image chambers of imagery. Remember we talked about the, the minds of the elders and the leaders of Israel, the ancients, and how they saw, they were looking at pornography, basically. They were into all kinds of evil, lustful, sinful stuff going on in the recesses of their minds. And the Lord showed easy, let's ref refresh our memory. Verses seven through 12 is what we looked at, uh, oh, three weeks ago or so, maybe four. <laughs> it says in verse seven, and he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw and behold every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jaaz Aniah, the son of Shaphan. With every man his censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? 
For they say, the Lord seeth us, uh, the Lord seeth us not, and the Lord hath forsaken the earth. Um, these people were doing it, think, they thought they were doing it in the dark, in the secret places, you know, of, uh, of the chambers of their imagery. But the Lord says, I see all this stuff. The story is told of a young soldier in 1942 uh, with his commanding officer getting on a train together. The only two available seats were directly across from uh, a very attractive young lady who was traveling with her grandmother. And so the four engaged in conversation and the soldier you know, kept the young lady, they kept kind of eyeing one another and what have you. And um, suddenly the train went into a tunnel, sending the train car into total darkness. Immediately two sounds were heard. The first sound was the smack of a kiss and the second sound was the smack of a hand on a cheek. <laughs> um, the grandmother thought, I can't believe he kissed my granddaughter but I'm glad she gave him a slap, he deserved it. The commanding officer thought, I don't blame the boy for kissing the girl, but it's a shame that she missed him and hit me instead. <laughs> the young girl thought, I'm so glad he kissed me, but I wish my grandmother hadn't slapped him for doing it. <laughs> As the train broke into the sunlight, the soldier couldn't help but smile. He had managed to kiss the pretty girl and slap his commanding officer and get away with both. <laughs> 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 John 3.19 says men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Uh, the dark deeds that we like to do in the dark so that nobody knows, that nobody sees, but God sees it. He sees it all. And uh, that's the problem. We think we're pulling stuff off, getting away with it, but as it turns out, the Lord sees everything. And, and really, tonight, you might think, Lord, are there things that I do that I think are in secret, that, that somehow I think I'm hiding from you and from everybody else? But we've talked about this, everything's naked and open before him with whom we have to do, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. Well, this is what's going on. So, so, so not only is there bad enough stuff going on on the Temple Mount, but it's even in the imagery of the, the minds of the elders, the ancients of Israel, and Ezekiel seeing all this ugliness. And, and it's really giving Ezekiel an accurate view of why the Lord is judging the Jews at this time, why Babylon is you know, conquering the Jews. It's because they'd given themselves wholly over to sin. And the Lord's gonna redirect them with punishment. Verse 13. He said also to me, turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house and behold the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about five and 20 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east and they worshiped the sun toward the east. Then said, he said unto me, hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit such abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and returned to provoke me to anger, and lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet 
I will not hear them. There is a point of no return where a person can, you know, frustrate the grace of God and his kindness where the Lord says, I can't let this continue. Um, the, the wrath of God does come at some point. And here we see this, the Lord saying, time's up. Now, now there's a couple things that they're doing and you and I may say, well, what's the big deal? So the w- women are weeping for Tammuz and, and the men are in the temple kneeling away from the temple and toward the east, toward the sun. Were they Muslims worshiping toward Mecca? No, that would come a long time later. Do you know the, that Islam started 600 years after the time of Christ? Uh, Islam is a new religion compared to Christianity uh, by 600 years, and it's a new religion, uh, you know, compared to, um, you know, Judaism by 2,600 years. So, like, it, it's really interesting, or I should say 3,600 years. You know, like, it's really a crazy thing to see uh, how people act like Islam, uh, you know, uh, the Christians steal stuff from Islam and stuff like that. That's ridiculous. But this idea of praying toward the sun, toward the east was common by pagans in those days. And they were people who were worshiping the sun, the rising of the sun in the east. And they were sun worshipers. Now, if you extrapolate what that really meant, it really had to do more with them worshiping creation. They were worshiping God's creation and putting sort of, or deifying uh, the sun and what have you. Uh, the Egyptians uh, did the same thing. There was a lot of people in pagan practices that worshiped the sun. They believed the sun was the giver of life and made things grow and blah, blah, blah. Now, today you say, well, good thing that we're not worshiping the sun anymore. Do you know that really earth worship is the same thing today? Um, there are people today that have taken, you know, uh, what, what we might call just being responsible dwellers on the earth Uh, which we're supposed to be, the Bible says, you and I, we're supposed to be good stewards of the earth that we, uh, that we live here. And, but, but at the same time, we can use the resources of this earth. Um, There are extreme environmentalists who have taken this to a religious level. And I hope none of you, uh, especially those of us from the Portland area here, have been sucked into really this, it's just a, a paganism that's still going today. Uh, do you, any of you guys old enough to remember the, uh, I think it was a butter commercial or something, uh, where the lady was there and she says, it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. And then lightning, and, and uh, Mother Earth and Mother Nature and all this stuff. And, and uh, like, you don't mess with her. Uh, but that was like the beginnings of something that actually went from kind of a goofy thing to people pretty much worshiping the earth. And, and, um, and there's, there's a real element uh, today that we've sort of called falsely science about the earth that I think we have to be uh, really careful not to, to worship the earth. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter uh, two that the Lord is gonna eventually destroy this earth. He's gonna fold it up like an old garment, like an old piece of, piece of clothing, and he's gonna put it away. Uh, the Lord's gonna do that. The earth that we live on is in fact temporary. So if you're worshiping it, there's not much of a future in that. If you're worshiping God, he is eternal uh, and he will not let you down. Does that mean we should trash the earth? Well, of course not. But we definitely should be worshiping the earth at the same time. And I think that's something that we have to be kind of careful about. Now, there's the worshiping of the sun toward the east we see here, Ezekiel talks about. But what's this thing about the women weeping for Tammuz? Well, this is that... Uh, interesting Babylonian paganism 
uh, that started way back in the book of Genesis. Do you remember uh, there uh, the story of Nimrod? Uh, some people call him Nimrod. Um, uh, and some people call him Nimrod the hunter because that's one of the way that one of the translations calls it. But he was actually a warrior, not hunting gazelles and deer and what have you. He was a hunter against the Lord is, is a better translation. He was sort of against God. Nimrod was the first um, sort of um, dictator, you might say. Uh, and and according to Babylonian lore, I'm not saying this is a true story, but it's amazing how it's stuck throughout history. Um, uh, there was sort of this immaculate conception that this woman named Samaramis became impregnated miraculously and uh, was the queen wife of Nimrod, the, the hunter as he's called. But um, the Nimrod of Genesis was um, this, this world leader. It's where they were building the Tower of Babel, that whole thing. But um, his wife, you know, they say, and I don't believe this, I have to say this over and over again, because one time I was telling this story about Semiramis, Nimrod, Tammuz, and some girl was listening to the teaching and she went home and told her boyfriend, Pastor Brett believes in this miraculous birth of Tammuz and Semiramis, and that's what Athey Creek believes. And so the, the guy came the next Sunday and he was shaking, he was so upset. You believe in Semiramis, what are you, what? I was like, what are you talking about, man? Uh, you know, maybe you should have been here uh, before you come telling me I believe in Semiramis and Tammuz. So anyway, I'm saying this, this is not true, but this was what the paganism of Babylon believed. Um, and by the way, if you're interested in this, it's not armchair reading, but there's a guy named Alexander Hislop who wrote a book in the 1800s called The Two Babylons. And he goes into this in painstaking detail about what their beliefs were. But there was a whole series of pagan celebrations around uh, the birth of Tammuz, but also Tammuz died and apparently rose from the grave. Now, now some of you might say, but that sounds amazingly like the story of Jesus. <clears throat> Only the Babylonians were believing that, you know, uh, thousands of years before Christ came. Um, now, this is where the secular world, by the way, and if you're a college student, listen to me closely because they love, they relish talking about stuff like this. They love saying, now see, Jesus was just an invention uh, sort of mimicking other traditions throughout the history of the world. <clears throat> and, and there's all kinds of things like that. One of the big ones you'll hear, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's a story of a flood and a, an original woman and a man. And it's sort of this grotesque version of sort of the story of the flood and Adam and Eve and all this stuff. Um, but but the boast of the college professors, Gilgamesh is older than the Bible. And so the Bible just borrowed the story and sort of cleaned it up <coughs> and put it in the Jewish Bible. And that's their whole argument about why the Bible's so unreliable because it's just really a, a plagiarism against the Epic of Gilgamesh and what have you. Here's the thing that's so funny about that. They're, they're jumping to a conclusion that because there's ancient stories about an original couple and a flood, uh, that that was the accurate one and the Bible's the wrong one. Those stories that actually did happen, the flood of Noah and Adam and Eve, they did happen. They were passed down by oral tradition. See, I could equally say as a pastor, well, the Echo of Gilgamesh just kind of confirms that there was a story that happened that was something like that. We just believe the Bible got the story right. Like there's not that big of a leap. Like you can't use that as proof that the Bible's wrong. Just like I can't use the, 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 the Bible and say it's exactly sure because of the Bible says it. 
Uh, there's other ways to defend the Bible when it comes to creation and Adam and Eve and Noah and all that stuff. It's not even that hard. But it's funny how these college professors will use this. And now, now the story of Semiramis Temu's virgin birth, death and resurrection, could it be that Satan himself is, well, what is he called? He's a liar and a counterfeiter. That's, that shouldn't shock us that throughout history, Satan has tried to mimic the work that God has or even the plan of God. You know, that was revealed all the way back in you know, Genesis chapter three, the proto-evangelium, which is a fancy way of saying the first mention of the gospel, that you know, the serpent, the, the snake, Satan, his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. The woman doesn't have the seed. The word seed is sperm. It does, the woman doesn't carry the seed. How is a, a, a child gonna be born seed of the woman? Well, that'd be the virgin birth. And the virgin birth would produce the Messiah who would then save the world from its sins and crush Satan. It was all part of God's plan. It shouldn't shock us that the, uh, Satan, the enemy, tries to sort of mimic and sort of do counterfeits of those things. By the way, all the counterfeits, whether you're talking about the Babylonian situation or, um, or Gilgamesh, they're all ugly interpretations and they're dark. Uh, I love the lightness of the Bible. But all that to say, now this is, this is where it gets kind of strange. This, the worshiping of Semiramis and Tammuz um, translated from the Babylonian culture and the Persian culture, and it eventually went to, from the Persians and it moved up to a place called Pergamos. And when you study the seven churches and the church at Pergamos, they were corrupted by the same paganism, by the way, Pergamos. But it went from Pergamos then into Rome. And this ancient pagan Babylonian religion, Mystery Babylon, some people call it, uh, Semiramis, Temuz and all that, uh, and it spread throughout Rome, even Egypt, and even the Middle East, and, and there's different names now uh, throughout history, whether it's Venus and Cupid, Isis and Horus, it's all the same religion, just different names. Uh, Ashtoreth and Baal, they're all part of the same, you know, uh, paganism. So all that to say, uh, but, it, but it became the epicenter in Babylon and the Romans became worshipers of Semiramis, Tammuz and that whole thing. And they adopted all the festivals and feasts and what have you. The whole system uh, makes up basically the old, old Roman Empire and their, the, the way they worshiped until about 312 AD. Um, by the way, um, before uh, uh, when Christ came and Paul brought the gospel to Rome and the Christian church started to scatter around Rome and around the world, Christianity was largely made illegal. Uh, there were 10 waves of horrible persecution for 300 years uh, of the Christian church. Like it wasn't just Paul being, you know, beheaded in Rome. It was from then on, man, the Romans, they were trying desperately to douse and to kill Christianity. Um, but the more they persecuted the church, the more um, the church thrived and they were hiding out in caves and, you know, worshiping God and, and uh, you know, the even the, the, the graves there in the tombs. Uh, that's one of the places I took a group to, uh, to Rome is we go down into the catacombs. And the reason that's kind of fun is there's, there's millions of graves under, the, under Rome and you can walk around in there even to this day, but that's where the church would go down and meet secretively so that the Romans wouldn't persecute them or kill them. When Constantine came along in 312, 
uh, AD, uh, Constantine was needing a better army and some help. Uh, some people believe this was a political decision. Some people believe he had a real spiritual enlightenment and saw the sign of the cross and on this sign conquer. Um, but it was at that point Constantine said, you know what, Christianity is no longer illegal. And you Christians join me. And by doing that, the Christians were finally like, wow, we can come out of the graves now. We can come out of the caves. And they went from the caves uh, and the sackcloth to the silk and the palaces and Christianity started to become accepted in the Roman Empire because of Constantine. It would only be a short time thereafter they would make Christianity the legal religion of Rome. Now, the reason this is interesting is because um, all these priests of the paganism of Rome, they said, hey, what are we gonna do? You, you know, Christianity is now the, the, the religion. What are we supposed to do? You know, we've got our, our temples and our pointy hats and our purple robes and our uh, you know, traditions of Semiramis and Temuz, Temuz and the East Estarte where we celebrate Temuz's resurrection and Saturnalius where we celebrate um, the birth of Temuz and uh, December 25th and the Yule log that we throw on, the fire showing his resurrection and the cross buns and, and, and all this stuff. You say, bro, what are you talking about? Well, this is what they did. These priests were like, what are we gonna do? And they're basically the Romans said, no, no sweat, man. We're just gonna make you, you can still do all that stuff, but it's gonna be, instead of Tammuz, it's gonna be Jesus. We're gonna Christianify everything. And so, you know, the, the whole thing changed to, to be Christmas was tw December 25th, where Jesus was born. Now, interestingly, we know Jesus wasn't born December 25th. Even the nominal Bible student knows Jesus was born in April. Um, uh, more of a springtime deal there uh, when they would have had the people coming to taxes. And we know the time when Jesus came to Jerusalem. Um, so why did we adopt the 25th? Because that, that fit with the Roman priests and those things. Um, whenever you see uh, the Roman Catholic Church and you wonder, why, why do they do that? It's so, so not in the Bible. It usually has something to do with the adopting of Christianity by these priests from back in 312 AD. Uh, if you don't believe me, read Alexander Hislop's book, The Two Babylons, and it's really quite an quite a amazing story. Now, by the way, uh, why do you celebrate Christmas then, Brett? Christmas trees, that was a Babylonian thing, and, and you know, Christmas and all that. The good reason I do is because I think it's been saved. We, we turned it around to Jesus. Most people that celebrate Christmas, we're still saying, yeah, it's all about Jesus, the real Savior, not Temu's. Now, you should definitely not have a Christmas tree. Do not have a Christmas tree if you're worshiping Tammuz and Semiramis, okay? Get rid of the tree, burn it. It's of Satan. But if you're having a Christmas tree for other reasons because you just like the smell and it's fun to decorate and having presents and all that stuff, that's great. Now, um, you'll notice I celebrate Christmas, but you won't find me celebrating Halloween. And there's a very simple reason. Brett, Halloween has you know, evil origins, Christmas has evil, evil origins. What's the difference? Big difference. Christmas was saved, Halloween wasn't. Halloween is still all about All Hallows Eve and ghouls and goblins and wishes and evil and all that stuff. And there's a very evil history behind All Hallows Eve. And so we don't celebrate that here. You won't find, you know, jack-o'-lanterns on our stage here uh, during Halloween uh, because we think that's dumb uh, and it's satanic. <laughs> 
uh, and we like worshiping Jesus. You know, so we, we have a harvest festival where we thank the Lord for his good things that he's done for us in, instead of all that other stuff. Um, so, the, but the reason I bring all this stuff up is because this is what the Jewish women were doing in Jerusalem when Ezekiel receives this vision. These women are weeping for Tammuz. It was a part of the festival where Tammuz died and they're all weeping for Tammuz. They're into this Babylonian paganism. Now here's what's interesting. Uh, Mark my words on this. The Lord's saying, you wanna worship Babylonian religion? I'll give you Babylonian religion. In fact, I'm gonna relocate you to Babylon and you're gonna go there and you're gonna become very familiar with the Chaldean Babylonian paganism. Um, like it's really sad. Sometimes there's a point where a person, they want something so much, the Lord says, okay, I'm gonna give it to you. You're gonna give what you want. And it's not because he's being mean, it's because we become so insistent on what we think we want. And there's a point where the spirit of God will not always strive with man. These women are weeping for Tammuz. They're gonna be weeping for Tammuz in Babylon for real because of what they're doing. We're gonna see more of that, the way the Lord works that out uh, as we continue this, uh, this narrative of the story. So these, these women are weeping, their men are worshiping the sun, and the Lord says, man, you, you guys are gonna be uh, toast. You're gonna be taken into captivity. Chapter nine, the vision continues. It says, he cried also in my ears with a loud voice saying, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand, and behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a rider's ink horn by his side, and they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. So he's seeing this vision of Jerusalem. Who are these six men? And who is this one clothed in linen? Linen speaks of what in the Bible? Purity or righteousness. So there's one with an inkwell, which speaks of maybe the word, but purity, but it's a, it's a man among them, among who? Well, I believe it's very possible, and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time giving you my reasons why necessarily, but uh, it gives you food for thought, stuff to study if you want to go deeper. Um, I believe these are very possibly six angels with swords drawn coming into Jerusalem with who's the one in white linen? Possibly the Holy Spirit. Um, Brett, angels coming with swords? Well, that's what angels do. I hope you understand that. You know, we, we think angels are these little white fluttery things that look like cotton candy. No. Do you remember in the Bible, one angel kills 185,000 soldiers in one night, slaughters them on the mountains of Jerusalem. One angel in the book of Revelation puts one foot in the ocean and one foot on the continent and says, any questions? And then is gonna crush everyone. Like, like forget the little buttery angel, you know, that just got his wings because a bell ring or something like that. That's just so, like, I, I almost wonder, I mean, we laugh at that, but I almost wonder if, if that's Satan going, let's, let's, let's make these angels look really fluttery and like, where's the fly swatter, you know? Uh, but angels are nothing you mess around with. Uh, jot second Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says this, um, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and they, them that 
obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with an everlasting destruction. What, what, is, what is Second Thessalonians talking about? Christ's coming, he's gonna come with angels during the tribulation period um, and will punish these people, these angels that are vengeance taking angels. Uh, we, we, we need to remember that angels are not little fluttery things that should be laughed at. Um, uh, so I believe it could be the Holy Spirit, the white linen uh, with these angels with swords drawn coming to Jerusalem to say, you guys are toast because of your paganism. Uh, but check this out. This might really confuse people. Verse three, and the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereon, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. That's the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, might be the Holy Spirit, um, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. But these angels must be demons because they're getting the mark of the beast on their forehead. Don't be confused by this. <clears throat> Question, who came up with the idea of the mark of the the mark on a person's forehead, anybody? Whose idea was that? Huh? God! People are nervous. Antichrist? <clears throat> no, it's not Antichrist. He didn't come up with that idea. It was God who came up with the idea of marking the believers with a mark on their forehead. Jot down Revelation chapter seven. It says in Revelation seven, verse two and three, it says, I saw another angel, this is the tribulation period, uh, ascending from heaven, the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cries with a loud voice to the four angels uh, who are given power to hurt the earth. Remember, these are angels that are not fluttery things. They're gonna hurt the earth and the sea. But it says, do not hurt the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. That's God's idea. Chapter 13 of Revelation, the Antichrist comes up with the harebrained idea of the mark of the beast and puts it on people that are on his side and puts a mark in their forehead and on their wrist. But that's only, remember Satan's a duplicator, an imitator, uh, you know, plagiarizer. That's who Satan is. But God marks these 144,000 Jehovah's Witness. No, I'm just kidding. They're not Jehovah's Witness. Uh, that's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Have you ever had a watchtower person come to your door? Yes, we're going to be part of the 144,000. No, you're not. Um, because the Bible says who they are. They're, they're 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're listed right here in Revelation 7 by the tribe. Like the Lord's going to say, there's going to be these people from this tribe and these people from that tribe. They're, now, if you tell this to a Jehovah's Witness who's there at your doorstep with their watchtower magazines, and you say, you're not part of the 144,000 because they're Jews. Well, we are Jews. We're the lost tribes. That's what they, that's what they say. And to me, that's easy because that's just wacko and you can just forget it because that's the dumbest thing. There's, there's no such thing as the lost tribes of Israel. That's people making stuff up now. Um, but these are Jews during the tribulation period. They're gonna have a mark, a seal in their forehead. What does that look like? I have no idea. But the Lord's gonna do it and then the Antichrist is gonna come with the beast, the false prophet. All these guys are gonna come with their mark of the beast, 666. That's only a, a um, sort of a counterfeit version of what God's gonna do with these 144,000 Jews. Um, 
what are those 144,000 Jews? I don't have time to go into it tonight. You can go back and listen to our teaching in Revelation chapter seven, and I do an in-depth study on that. But it is interesting here in Ezekiel, we see this angel coming and marking the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for the abominations that have been done. And so there's a few people that are gonna be marked as on God's side by this, maybe the Holy Spirit and these angels with swords. Verse five, and to the others, he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eye spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near to any man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at this ancient men, which were before the house. And he said unto them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. So this is where Ezekiel, you kind of wonder, is he talking about Jerusalem in 586? The final crushing of Jerusalem and the, the Lord is sort of metaphorically saying the Babylonians that would slay everybody, man, woman, and child, the Babylonians that did that? Could be. That could be what he's sort of referring to in a spiritual kind of context. But it also could be his gaze going past into the tribulation period. The same thing's gonna happen. The mark's gonna be put on their foreheads. There's gonna be people that'll be set aside for protection by the Lord. Same scenario is gonna happen in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. This is where we start to see Ezekiel's gaze go just past his time and into future, even in our time. So it's, it's somewhat of a mystery, but I see both uh, perhaps being referred to here. Verse eight, and it came to pass while they were slaying them and I was left, that I fell upon my face and cried and said, ah, oh, Lord God. This is the second time he did it. Remember the first time he did this? Was when he was supposed to cook food with human waste. Remember that? Oh, Lord God. It's kind of like, you know, oy vey or whatever. Like, 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 you know, are you kidding me? Uh, like that's kind of what he's saying. And he can't believe what he's hearing. And, and every time uh, he sees something that just breaks his heart or freaks him out, he says, oh, Lord God. He goes on in verse eight, wilt thou destroy all the residue in, of, in, of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem? Then said he unto me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. And the land is full of blood and the city full of perverseness. For they say, the Lord hath forsaken the earth and the Lord seeth not. As for me also, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. And behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. You know, it's interesting about the Holy Spirit, if this man with inkwell and the linen is the Holy Spirit. One of the things about the Holy Spirit that's kind of interesting to me is a radical submission to the first and even the second part of the Holy Trinity. Um, you, how can you say that, Brad, a submission to you? Well, isn't it interesting that when you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you always see the Holy Spirit deferring to both the Father and the Son. And, and this is important. Uh, remember when Jesus said the Holy Spirit's coming, John chapter 14, John chapter 16, he said the Spirit of truth is gonna come. He shall glorify me. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is always does what the Father in heaven wants and what Jesus, it's pointing to in glorifying Jesus. That's why I can't stand with these churches that are all about the Holy Spirit. 
When, when you hear a church talking more about the Holy Ghost and people, that one sign is they're flopping on the floor and swinging from the chandeliers and stuff, you know, charismaniacs, um, you know. We're, charis we're, we're charismatic as church go. We believe in the power and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We're just charismatics with a safety belt. That's the Bible. But there's some that's all about the Holy Ghost. You go to a church, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. And, and, and the Holy Ghost gets all the credit and all the glory, but you're missing the whole point. Read what Jesus said about the work of the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, the Son. And so the work, the true work of the Holy Spirit in the church is to make Jesus bigger and to be seen and to be understood and to be remembered and worshiped. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So if the Holy Spirit's moving in a church so that Jesus is being glorified, mission accomplished. But if the Holy Spirit's moving in a church and, and people are claiming it's the Holy Spirit just, just for the wow factor, it's people just making stuff up and doing weird things. Um, read your Bible on this one. Uh, remember Paul had to correct the church in Corinth because they were all about speaking in tongues, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And, and they were abusing that manifestation. And he had to say, man, I'd rather you speak, you know, um, regular words, you know, uh, that people can understand than, you know, than 10,000 words of, of tongues. He said, tongues are the least of the gifts. The Corinthians made it the biggest of the gifts because it was the wow factor. Um, see, we have to put things in perspective when it comes to the Bible. I find it interesting that this linen person with the inkwell, and why the inkwell? Because it's the spirit that gives us the Bible. The Holy Spirit, God breathed the word of God. You know, the word of God is linked to the Holy Spirit. And maybe there's that tie, but the, the, the reason I'm more and more convinced that this is the Holy Spirit with the angels with the swords is because of the last phrase, I have done as thou hast commanded me. That, that sounds to me like the way the Holy Spirit reacts to the Father. Well, verse 10, chapter 10, verse one. Then I looked and behold in the firmament, there was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone as the appearance of the likeness of the throne. Now, as we read about the cherubim and the wheels, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this part because this is almost word for word what we went over in chapter one, but this is a reminding us of what that was. Okay, so let's, let's get through this. In verse two, and he spake unto the man clothed with linen and said, go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubims and scatter them over the city. And he went in my sight. He went in, in my sight. Now, pause for a second, I forgot to mention. In chapter one, we were never told it was cherubims. It was only here that we learned it was cherubims. Do you guys remember that? Um, it's kind of interesting that now we find out those are called cherubims, uh, but they're the same ones talked about in chapter one. Now, verse three, the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house and the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory and the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the almighty God when he speaketh. And it came to pass when he had commanded the man clothed with linen saying, take fire from between the wheels, from between the cherubims. And he went in and stood beside the wheels and one cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubims unto the fire that was between the cherubims and took thereof and put it in the hands of him that was clothed with linen, who took it and went out. 
And there appeared in the cherubims the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, behold, the four wheels by the cherubims, one wheel by one cherub, another wheel by another cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was as the color of barrel stone or green. And as for their appearances, they four had one likeness, as if a wheel had been in the midst of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, they turned not as they went, but to the place whither the head looked, they followed it. And they turned not as they went, and their whole body was their backs, and their hands and their wings and their wheels were full of eyes round about, even the wheels that they four had. Now this is new information, the, the eyes on the wheels and what have you. So this is again really, uh, you know, we, we could dive into this again, but it, you know, the, the eyes speak of insight and, and knowledge and knowing and seeing. These cherubims have eyes everywhere, so they see things and they can, they've, they've, we saw them as these insightful, knowledgeable, wise beasts there before the throne of God. Now with these wheels and wheels, sort of gyroscopic thing, as they're coming down, they're, they're here in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Uh, verse 13, as for the wheels, it was cried unto them in my hearing, O wheel. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second was the face of a man. The third was the face of a lion. And the fourth was the face of an eagle. Now, some of you say, Brett, I protest. Um, wasn't the first one supposed to be an ox? Um, there's two theories on this one, and I'll just give you what they are. Some people say this was a copyist error, and instead of saying cherub, it should have said ox. Um, you know, in, in the copying of the manuscripts over the centuries. Others say, no, no, no. The cherub, the main face of the cherub was that of an ox. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting thing, if that's true. But in this account, different than chapter one, we see the, the first face being spoken of as a cherub. Is it an ox cherub? You can look that up. There's all kinds of debate over what this is all about. But you've got, in this case, the cherub, the man, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle. Verse 15, and the cherubims were lifted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river of Kibar, and that's chapter one. And when the cherubims went and the wheels went by them, and when the cherubims lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also turned not from beside them. When they stood, these stood, and when they were lifted up, these lifted up with themselves also, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord, mark this, note it, check it out. Then the glory of the Lord, verse 18, departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. And the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight when they went out. The wheels also were beside them and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the house, of the Lord's house and the glory of God, of the God of Israel was over them above. This is the living creatures that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar or Kibar and I knew that they were the cherubims. Everyone had four faces apiece, everyone four wings and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. And the likeness of their faces was the same faces which I saw by the river of Kibar, appearances and themselves, they went everyone straight forward. Now, I know this is kind of heavy and there's all kinds of crazy stuff that we're seeing, cherubims and wheels within wheels, but just picture 
this massive, interesting, hovering thing going down to the Temple Mount and the glory of God coming out of the temple and sitting on this thing. And then it starts to rise up and move away from the Temple Mount. What do you think this is talking about? This is basically saying, the Lord's saying, I'm out of here. And it's, it's sort of the royal, uh, godly processional with these cherubims and the wheels and the insightful eyes and all this stuff that sees. It's all the Lord saying, because of all the darkness in this town of Jerusalem and because of my people's evil, I can't coexist with that. Can light dwell with darkness? What fellowship does you know, evil have with righteousness? And the point is the Lord's saying, I'm heading out of here. This is that sense I was talking about earlier as, as this massive machinery of cherubims and wheels is starting to lift. You get the sinking in your heart, hopefully to understand God's presence is leaving the Jews, leaving Israel. And it's gonna be gone for a long, long, long time. I know it's late, but we gotta finish chapter 11 because this is the part of the vision. We don't wanna chop this up. So let's, let's tackle chapter 11 quickly here. Um, so moreover, the spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which looketh toward the eastward. And behold, the door of the gate, five and 20 men, among whom I saw Jaaz, Ania, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. Then said he unto me, son of man, these are the men that dev devise mischief and give wicked counsel in the city. These are the guys responsible for all the wickedness. Verse three, which say, it is not near. Let us build houses. Uh, this city is the cauldron and we be the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and, I, and, and said unto me, speak. Thus saith the Lord, thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. So now it's directed as the glory of God starting to depart from Jerusalem. The, the main guys that are the, the, you know, head honchos of Jerusalem that are evil, that have brought all this evil in. Now the Lord's looking at them and Ezekiel's saying, I see you guys and I know what's going on in your brains, evil. Verse six, you have multiplied your slain in the city. You have filled the streets thereof with the slain. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the flesh. This and this city is the cauldron but I will bring you forth out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword and I will bring the sword upon you, saith the Lord God. But it's funny how wicked men have their fears. The Lord says, yeah, you be afraid. Like I love how the Lord for his people, people that have repented and turned to him, they say, he says, fear not, I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. But for the people that rebel against God, the Lord says, be afraid. And the very things you're afraid of, be more afraid. Like that, it's, it's just the truth. You gotta understand God is righteous and he doesn't just wink at people that have rejected him. And man, I could go on and on at people in our culture that have just flown in the face of God and said, you know, um, abortion is, is great. And there's lies that will, will conjure up, uh, you know, to make sure that abortion, you know, Roe versus Wade is, you know, passed. And, and, and then millions, 61 million babies, you know, killed in our country since Roe versus Wade. And there's evil people who've conjured this up in their minds. And I believe that those people who, you know, gave this horrible narrative and made the world think that abortion is okay, even though it's an, a total abomination against God, those people are gonna have to stand before God someday. 
And this is the kind of thing that I see. It's the same stuff, really. The wickedness of abortion is the same kind of paganism that these guys were doing. And the Lord's not gonna wink at that. Now, good news for the repentant sinner. The person who repents and says, Lord, I've sinned against you and I, I wanna be forgiven. The Lord is quick to forgive and he puts his seal on your forehead and he saves you and you're marked as one to be saved. But the person who's unrepentant, man, you don't wanna be in the line of fire. And that's kind of what we're seeing here. This is a scary thing. And the Lord's basically telling these guys, yeah, I know what's in your brain, be afraid. Verse six, you have multiplied your slain in the city. You have filled the streets thereof with the slain. Is that where I left off? Huh? Verse nine, thank you. It's hard hearing, uh, I can't say how many people um, <laughs> just replied to that, but, but a few, a few, a few that are in our room, socially distanced here. Um, <laughs> uh, verse nine, I will bring you out of the midst thereof and deliver you in the hands of strangers and will execute judgments among you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you in the border of Israel and you shall know that I am Jehovah, the Lord. This city shall not be your, your cauldron, neither be the flesh in the midst thereof, but I will judge you in the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you, for you have not walked in my statutes, neither executed my judgments, but have done after the manners of the heathen that are round about you. And it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelatea, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and I cried with a loud voice and said, oh, Lord God, I wonder if Ezekiel knew old Pelatiah. I wonder if he knew him personally and thought, what? I didn't realize he was that sinful. And oh Lord, he's dead now. Um, Will thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? He asked again, verse 14, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of men, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred and all the house of Israel, uh, holy are they unto whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, get you far from the Lord unto us is this land given in possession. Therefore, now verse 16, mark it well, this is important. Therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Boy, what a, we could talk about that. So basically from the time the Jews would be scattered all over the world, and Jerusalem would not be a place of worship for them. The Lord says, guess what? They're still gonna be my people and I'm gonna have a little sanctuary for them in their own homes. I will be their little sanctuary until what? Well, verse 17, therefore say, thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. Verse 17, that last phrase, mark it well, because that should end the Arab Israeli question. Are Israelis occupiers of the Holy Land? No. They're the only people group in the world that can say God gave us this land. Only the Jews. We can't say it as Portlanders. We, didn't, we took this land from the Blackfoot Indian or the, the various Indian tribes that were here. Uh, we did that just like everybody else in the world. It's always funny to me, these sanctimonious people that act like you know uh, certain people are occupying because everybody in the world's occupying their country. They've taken it from someone somewhere in history. Like everybody's guilty. It's so stupid that we don't acknowledge that. The only people in the whole world that can say that they purchased their land, that they 
were given their land by the world, uh, the League of Nations right after World War II, the Holocaust, everybody felt guilty. So they said, Israel, Jews, you can have this land. They were given their land. It was desolate and barren. There was just a few Bedouins that were there. And the Jews said, you can, the Bedouins, you guys can stay here. They weren't even outing the people that were there that didn't even wanna be there. And so the world gave them, they purchased the land. And then God says, by the way, I give you the land. Strike three. Anybody who says Israel doesn't have a right to exist, it's really a demonic sort of uh, notion that the Jews should be cast into the sea. That's like the Iranians and Joseph Biden. Certain people believe um, (laughs) that Israel has no right to the land. I'm not joking. Uh, The Biden administration is not pro-Israel. They're they're more pro-Palestinian Arab than they are. And that's unfortunate. It's gonna hurt us as a nation, I believe. Well, verse 18, and they, oh, by the way, this whole thing about the scattering of the Jews and the regathering, Ezekiel's got a ton more to say about this later on. We're gonna get into this. We're doing a deep dive into that here in in a few weeks. Verse 18, and they shall come uh, thither and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof and all the abomination thereof from thence. And I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord God. Question, when will God do a heart transplant there with the Jews, anybody? Right, somebody said it. During the tribulation period, that's when the Jews will see that Jesus was the Messiah. That's where all of Israel will be saved at the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, Romans 11, 25. It's when the rapture of the church happens, the tribulation period, the Jews are enlightened that Jesus is the Messiah and then he will give them a new heart and uh, he will, they will be his people again. But right now, blindness has happened to them. Uh, verse 22, then did the cherubims lift up their wings. Okay, remember, the cherubims were about ready to leave, hovering there. Now we got this final message, but now we're about to see the Lord's presence depart. So the cherubims lifted up their wings, the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. Anybody know what the mountain on the east side of the city is called? Mount of Olives, kind of a big deal. If you're into like Area 51, forget about that. The Mount, the Mount of Olives is one of the most amazing places on earth because it's where, um, it's where here the glory of God left Israel with the cherubim and the wheels and Ezekiel, it just off it goes from the Mount of Olives, out of the East Gate, up the hill, up the Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus you know, where, where, did, where did he ascend into heaven? From the Mount of Olives. Where's Jesus gonna come back and touch his foot back on the earth? The Mount of Olives. Where did Jesus in human flesh come and they cried out Hosanna and he rode into Jerusalem. Where did he come from? The Mount of Olives. Like the coming and going of God's presence has everything to do with the Mount of Olives. And it's kind of an amazing thing. But this might be one of the most impressive you got cherubims and wheels and the glory of God and it's just coming and it's just going up from the Mount of Olives. What a scene. Verse 24, afterward, the spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the spirit of God into Chaldea, 
That's where he was back, back at the Hall of Justice. He goes from, you know, the river Kibar into this vision of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And he's, oh, and now he's back at Kibar. That's what's going on. The Lord brings him back to Chaldea to them of the captivity. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. Then I spake unto them of the captivity all the things that the Lord had showed me. Kind of a heavy thing, but in a nutshell, because of the crazy sinfulness of the people, God says, I'm out of here. And his presence departed from the people. And the Bible, even the book of Romans teaches you and me, if we wanna live evil lives and do evil sinful stuff, the Lord's spirit will not always strive with man. And, and can light have fellowship with darkness? Can righteousness have fellowship with evil? The answer is no. So you and I, if we wanna have Christ's presence in our lives, we need to stay prayed up and run from sin. And when we do sin, be quick to confess your sins to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me and give me a fresh start. Um, because, man, I want the Lord with me at all times. What? The Lord's hand is not short that he cannot touch you. His ear is not deaf that he cannot hear you. But it's your sin that separates you from God. That's what Isaiah 59 tells us in verse one. So um, you and I have the honor and the privilege of having God's presence and the Holy Spirit in our lives and on our lives. But if we let our sin just go unchecked and, and uh, keep going with that, <clears throat> don't be shocked if you think, man, I just don't feel like God's in my life anymore because he may not be. Well, bro, did you lose your salvation? It's so funny, people get all into the technicals. Can you lose your salvation, once saved, always saved, all that? All I know is this, the Bible gives us enough to say, don't be playing around with sinful stuff because the Lord's glory is not gonna stay in that place of sinful uh, darkness. We need to, blessed are they which are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. For who, who are they? They are the ones who are gonna be filled. That's what Jesus said. There's so much we can learn from Ezekiel's little uh, visions here in these chapters. But, uh, but one of the glorious things is you always get a sense of the Lord's mercy and his grace because he's not gonna forsake these people. Even though a lot of them are gonna be destroyed because of their own sin, the Jewish people, God still has a plan and a purpose. And we're gonna see that unfold as we continue our study. So let's pray and then we'll call it a night. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Um, what a mysterious book, um, seeing all these visions of Ezekiel and what these cherubim mean and the wheels within wheels. But we do see this impressive sense um, of your presence in Jerusalem and the, the very sad departing of your glory. And Lord, we know that your word makes it clear that blindness has happened to Israel and, and they've been under this um, sort of glorious existence for many, many decades and centuries and even millennia. But we know you have a plan for the Jews still. And we know that you're gonna save all of Israel at some point. But Lord, how thankful we are that we have your glory in our lives, Lord. I pray that we'd have more of you, less of us. I pray that we would be hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that we might be filled with your presence, with your life, with your goodness. Lord, bless your church. Help us to remember and learn from these people who made such a horrible mistake to just depart from your ways. Give us that, Lord, I pray, that new desire to follow after you. So bless these, your people, as we go our way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.